Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 116 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a great show lined up for you today. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you this week's interview with my guest, Jimmy Petruzzi. Uh, Then we'll have this week's Hypnosis in the News Stories. It's back. I'll be examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest, Jimmy Petruzzi. We'll be talking about his approach to working with and advancing sports performance. Uh, And we'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. As I said at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, uh, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis, and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted in the episode notes section at iTunes and on each episode's page on their website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. If you enjoy this podcast, please do go give us a favourable rating, even a review at iTunes. I'll be a BFF if you do. It takes just a few seconds, just a couple of clicks to give us a favourable rating and it does us a load of good. So um, first of all, today is this week's interview with Jimmy Petruzzi, my guest this week. So um, Jimmy's a a high performance coach, a hypnotherapist, an NLP trainer. He's an author, a TV presenter, a musician. He's a broadcaster and he's won awards as a coach and as a speaker as well. And, you know, he's been working in these fields for a couple of decades now. Um, I mean, as well as working with businesses and corporate world um, a fair bit, he's worked with professional football teams and, and individuals at national, international level um, um, and what, what, what with English premiership clubs and, 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 and worldwide. Um, and, he, and he's worked with and continues to work with international and Olympic athletes, top professional sports people and consultants to sports organisations and so on. Um, um, so, so, you know, it was something I really wanted to, to speak to him about, um, um, speak to him about advancing sports performance uh, using hypnosis later on in the show. That's going to be our topic that we focus in on. He's going to be speaking at this year's hypnosis, uh, UK hypnosis convention again this year. Um, and I've really wanted to have him here on the podcast for a while. So without any further ado, let's get on with it, shall we? For now, get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume. Sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. So 
So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest on the Hypnosis Weekly podcast, the one and only Mr. Jimmy Petruzzi. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam. Great to be on the show. So, um, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, um, how did you get into this field? You know, what's your background and how have you arrived at where you are now? Yeah, for me, it started very young. I was approximately 15, 16 years of age and I had a, I had a, I wouldn't say a troubled childhood as such, but I had some challenges. I was, I was a late developer. I was relatively uh, small for my age, and I suffered asthma and, and limiting beliefs, and I had a few family problems as well. And 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 I sort of I found something I could do well, and that was sport. At about say 17, 18, I knew I had something there. And but I had a lot of things, a lot of things, limiting beliefs going through my mind, and I found a sports psychologist to help me because I had very severe asthma too and many, many things were going through my mind in terms of can I do, can I participate in sport at the highest level and I lacked belief and I came from an environment where I didn't get much encouragement and I struggled as well academically, ironically. Um, I say ironically and I'll sort of touch on that later in the show. Yeah. But I found a sports psychologist and I sort of worked a summer job to pay to, to do a few sessions with him and I valued it so much and little I realized he had a background in hypnosis and I found it really worked for me so much and, and that sort of led me on my path to learn more about the modality and there's a story that I'll share, Adam, which is quite a powerful story yeah. and I certainly wouldn't recommend anybody else you know, do what I did. Um, <laughs> I, I certainly wouldn't recommend them do, do what I did but I had severe asthma and I used to spend a lot of time in A&E for my asthma and I was on medication and I used to go to the GP every week um, to get some shots for dust and grass allergy and I had a moment where I had this very severe asthma attack and I went to A&E and I couldn't breathe very well and I thought this is just not good and I did a lot of soul searching and I decided that what I would do is not bother with the shots no more, not bother with the medication no more, and just pursue my dream of playing sport at the very highest level. Now, I wouldn't advocate anyone listening to do what I did. I'm not a medical person. Please don't sort of take that as, you know, I did that because I felt that the mind, I was going to use it. And, and for me, I'd used, not just hypnosis, obviously, but I'd use that sort of mind. And there were times when I was, you know, quite afraid and thought, am I doing the right thing by doing this? But all in all, I felt that that would really signify to me the power of the mind. I decided that moment that actually I'm not going to give up playing sport. I'm going to take a more unconventional approach. And I certainly didn't use hypnosis for the asthma. And I'm not suggesting there's a correlation or causation between the two. Mm. But I feel that by building belief in myself and, and believing that there was a way around it because I didn't want to live a life of sort of, you know, going into A&E and, and, and having these sort of shots that I was having that didn't seem to be making any difference for me. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that won't make a difference for other people. They certainly do or wouldn't advocate doing what I did. But that's sort of giving me a bit of an insight into my story, Adam, you know. Yeah. You've got these sort of young teenagers sort of suffering with belief and got these sort of medical issues too around asthma and breathing, lacks confidence, and all of a sudden find this embryonic seed of belief and, and that for me was 
learning and then going on my own path about how can I take control of my own mind to full effect. And that's where I am with hypnosis. That's where the journey begins for me. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, I mean, um, uh, uh, you know, you you really tested yourself in a, in a very full on way. Um, um, uh, let's um, we're going to explore a bit more about you and and your background and a bit more in a, in a short while, but. Just, just tell me where you're at as far as hypnosis is concerned. You know, how, how do you define it, or how do you explain it to your clients, or or, or, yeah. or when people ask you at a party, and and how, how have you arrived at that? Just, just tell me where you're at as far as hypnosis is. I mean, where the where the, one of the first books I read was um, "My Voice Will Go With You," and memory serves me correct, it was by by Sidney Rose, and mm. and I, I it was really powerful for me because this was back in the day, and there was no Google. You had to sort of go out there and do your own research. And yeah. I'd go to a library and I'd research and read the literature and whatever was out there. And I became interested in various types of different ways of doing hypnosis. And for me, this sort of approach, this sort of indirect approach became um, really, really resonated with me. Um, I ended up going to a seminar. Ironically, I went to a Tony Robbins seminar very young. And I thought the way he speaks is quite similar to the way the coach I'm working with speaks in some ways, and that sort of led me on that path of the, if you want to call it the Eric Sonin approach. Um, but for me, it was the reading the work of Ernie Rossi and and and, um, and other people. I, I never met Ericsson. I came into the party after he's obviously uh, passed away in terms mm. of my own uh, journey, but I was quite heavily influenced by his work and by people who trained with him yeah. on my own journey, as well as other modalities too. I don't just do hypnosis. I do have a modality to study in other areas too, but that's always been something that sort of resonated with me in terms of my own journey. How do you define it? Um, it's quite an interesting one. I think that I've heard many, many definitions. I remember reading a book one time uh, by, by Jay Haley, and he talked about how, I think it was a book or a research paper, I don't recall now, but he talked about how hypnosis, and I'm using my words, not his, I'm sure he could explain it better than me, but he talked about being a bit like... Um, a bit like, say, electricity. We can use it, but we you don't quite know how uh, in terms of how it works. So yeah. for me, the way I explain it to my clients, and a lot of them, they sort of know what I do anyway. I've been doing it for so long, so they've got a bit of an idea. But I ask my clients what their thoughts are before I explain it to get an idea of what their perception is of it. And then mm. I just talk about how it's just getting into a different state. Um, for me, it's quite simple. It's sort of guiding people to an alpha or theta state where the alpha waves are more dominant, the person's still alert, but they've got passive awareness. That sort of transition between consciousness and subconscious. So I sort of give them a bit of, uh, if you want to call it psychoeducation, in terms of brainwave states and how they're more receptive in that theta, um, deep relaxation. And I sort of compare it to when they get up in the morning and they're sort of half awake or before they go to bed at night, if we can sort of get them to go to that state, they're going to be more receptive to change um, beliefs and behavioral patterns. So that's pretty much how I explain it, really. Um, yeah. I try to avoid you know, jargon and make it too complicated and just keep it real, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you mentioned you mentioned Ericsson and Ernest Rossi there. Um, do, to tell me about some of your major influences in this field. Perhaps even some of the books, some of the authors that have taught you the most, or, or teachers that have been most influential upon you. Yeah. Um, 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 yeah, tell me about that bit, Jim. Yeah, I mean, certainly my voice book with you was was a big, you know, really 
uh, a big part of my my learning. Um, absolutely, I would say that um, another book was the the Rossi Erickson book, which is quite uh, useful. It was Innovative Hypnotherapy. It was a collection of papers of Milton Erickson, yeah. and I really I read that and that really sort of got me on the way. But in terms of teachers, the NLP. Um, I've done a lot of studies in NLP. Um, the listeners are probably aware of that. I've written books in that area. I've had a lot of great teachers in the field of NLP. But I would say for me, my biggest influence in hypnosis would be um, the likes of, say, um, probably Dr. Jeff Zeig, uh, who set up the Ericsson Foundation. Yeah. We all have teachers that resonate with us the most. And I'm yeah. not suggesting that other teachers I've had haven't been great. But I would say the likes of um, Dr. Uh, Jeff Side, who set up the Ericsson Foundation, who I've studied with over the years. Um, Brent Geary as well, who's part of the foundation. Mm. William Jay. They, they probably resonated with me more in my style and my personality. Um, but equally in saying that, I would say that um, other books outside hypnosis have, have formed a really uh, big part of, of my approach. And, you know, the likes of the, the Gulag Archipelago by uh, Solnitian, um, the likes of Man's Search for Meaning by Frankel, you know, the, the, the likes of, you know, books by William James and William um, Wundt as well. And there haven't only been hypnosis books that have really formed the blueprint. I, I think for me, uh, I'm quite existential uh, as a person in the way I see the world and look for meaning. And I would say I've been influenced by psychology heavily too, albeit I decided that I'd get to a level of psychology which was postgraduate level, and I felt that I want more possibility rather than pathology. But I've got huge respect for people in the field of psychology, and they influenced my work considerably. But for me personally, I felt that I prefer a world of possibility, albeit psychology has changed a lot over the years, and it's far more dynamic. And I'm a committee member as well of the Northwest um, BPS, and, and you know I do what I can to offer my input. I felt that I want to look for a world of possibility, hence, you know, the NLP and hypnosis and now, um, you know, going back to science and neuroscience because the science would, would form a backbone in the early days for me because I sort of studied sports science and sports performance conditioning, which is more physiological, but we know that physiology um, has a big connection to the mind as well. So that's pretty much where I am with things really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for that. I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, so, so, so throughout these years, um, th throughout these years that you've been, you know, since since you've been uh, interested in this field, you know, from that age of 15, 16, um, um, tell me, tell me, what's been, what's been one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed? I mean, obviously, you kind of really challenged and tested yourself. Um, um, with, with, with some of your own skills. What's, what's one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that, that you've directly witnessed? I think it's a difficult one, um, Adam, because sometimes you go to like courses and seminars and conferences and you know it's fantastic really because I watch other people do what they do and it's, I find it really fascinating. I'm the sort of person you'll probably see at a conference in the back of the room taking notes, always learning, lifelong learner, believe you can always learn something of everybody really yeah. um, and it's a challenging one because sometimes I think that and it happens to me as well I think too when I'm sort of doing a demonstration you get the resistance of other compliance so it's hard to gauge you know someone comes up and I see other compliance people they buy into you as a trainer as a coach as a therapist and they sort of over comply when you do a technique so it's difficult to gauge 
um, and you can follow it up in, in time to see how things have worked well. But I, I mean, there's too many to name one. Um, but I would say for me personally, sometimes, you know, watching the likes of Dr. Jeff Zai in action when he's doing what he does and sort of sitting back and just seeing the metaphors roll through and the, 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 the language and, um, and, you know, it's almost like a, a dance really in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, it's spectacular to sort of watch certain people do what they do. So I wouldn't say there's been one application. I would say a combination of, you know, various really top professionals in the industry just sitting back and watching them in flow. It's almost like they're channeling from, you know, from somewhere else really. And it really is phenomenal seeing them in flow. Um, the videos that I've seen of Ericsson and the audios that I've listened to about a million times, um, <laughs> to me, it's almost like an awe. It's very rarely I'm in awe, but when I sort of hear him say what he says and you think, you know, sometimes I'll sort of have a, an audio one or, you know, watch an old video and think, wow, you know, this is incredible how you just wonder where the thoughts are coming from, really. So, you know, like a Milton Erickson, you know, there's this sort of, in my opinion, the misconception that he was indirect. I don't think Erickson was indirect. I think his process was indirect mm. to communicate concepts, but he knew where he was go going and he was orientating towards helping someone change. So I think it was just, you know, beautiful to see that sort of process of indirectness, but knowing really where you're going to go with things. Um, so that for me would be um, some of the most impressing stuff. It's just a shame. I would have loved to have seen him uh, live, obviously, but um, but to see it on video is the next best thing, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that's, I really enjoyed that answer. Um, um, tell us, you know, um, um, if, if you could go back to when you started out, working as a, as, a, as, a, as a hypnosis professional or, or working with, with, with all the different variety of modalities uh, therapeutically that you do, knowing, knowing the stuff that you know now, you know, after all of these years working in the field, is there anything that you would do differently? And if so, what? And is there any advice that the person that you are today would give that younger you um, that you'd share um, as, as advice with our, our listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, with hindsight, I look back in, in life and think, well, I would have done this, that, and the other. And it's a great question because, you know, we can always do things differently. And hopefully in the time I've been in the industry and, and you know, gone across various modalities, I can not so much give advice, but, you know, give my two buzzwords really for what it's worth. I would say personally for me, one of the things that happened to me would be I would, I would sort of get heavily stigmatized with sport. And the reason being is that, Sport, when you work in the era, it, you know, you get column inches in, in, in the press. And I, I had some big breakthroughs in sport and worked for some high-profile athletes and footballers and football teams. And I would go on to write books, predominantly NNLP. Um, and one of the, the best sellers I wrote was in sport. And to give you an example, Adam, I mean, I was in, in New York recently. I was at the airport just minding my own business as you do, <laughs> waiting for the plane. And this guy actually come up to me and says, you know, I have a son that plays sport at this level. And he actually recognized me. And I do get that sometimes for what it's worth. How is beyond me. But the point being is that the stigma is there. And, you know, there's a lot more to what I do. I've expanded the radar considerably since the early days when yeah. I got into it for self-application in sport. But I think for me um, – making more of a conscious effort because I think 
you know, we were hindsight. And I think sometimes, you know, it's one of them really looking back on it. I think that um, I probably could have got out there more and done more in other areas in the sense to break the stigma around the perception that people have around me being purely sport. When sport is probably about 10% of what I do these days. I do a lot more across a broad range of areas and have done for many, many years. So I would say anyone coming through, um, you know, widen the radar, learn various modalities, um, find the approach that works for you. That's really important. Uh, I respect other people in, in the approach that they have. But I think one of the most significant things I would say to anyone sort of get, getting into the industry would be uh, make sure you've got a good business model. I mean, I love what I do and really enjoy what I do, like you do, like many other people do. And one of the things that really, really uh, affected me um, would be to not run as a business in the early days. I love what I did so much that, literally speaking, I know this sort of goes outside the realms of application of the modality, but it's really important you've got a model in place because you just will not survive. And I, I left a really well-paid position in sport to finally decide to work on my own and because I really want to work with people and diversify what I did. Yeah. And one thing I found, it wasn't good enough to be good at what you did. I'd won many awards in sport. I'd achieved a lot of recognition, got loads of column inches, got loads of, you know, had a great media platform. But I found that one of the areas that I was suffering with was I love what I did so much that I didn't have a proper business model in place. And I do work for corporations and I'd be chasing up in invoices. I'd have people I'd be working with and I wouldn't take payments. And you really got to make sure that you start as you mean to go on. You know, be assertive, ask for payment at proper T's and C's in place because it doesn't matter how good you are as a therapist, as a coach, you just will not survive in the industry if you don't run as a business. And don't be afraid to run as a business, by the way, because you've got to pay the bills. You've got to make money as well and, and little bit of advice I'd like to offer people going into the industry, which probably goes off piece a bit, but it's important, I think, to do. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, um, um, it, it, even if your main aim and the thing w w which is making you thrive and inspiring you um, is that you know you want to do good in the world, you, you know, if, yeah. if 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 you you know you're not going to be able to do good and do any good in the world if you're not functioning as as a business and you're not able to to, to kind of stay alive and so on. Um, now, Jimmy, we're going to speak in a bit more detail about about some of your specialism, um, and, and and I'm really excited about speaking and asking you about some of some of your your, your approaches to sports. Um, but for now, where can people go to learn more about you, your work, your approach, and so on? Yeah, I mean, they can. I've got the uh, a Facebook page, the NLP and hypnotherapy mindset for success. If they uh, type that in Facebook, they should find me. Um, equally, my email address, they can contact me directly. It's Jimmy, J-I-M-M-Y, Petruzzi, P-E-T-R-U-Z-Z-I, at nlp-trainingcourses.com. That's Jimmy Petruzzi at nlp-trainingcourses.com. So they can contact me directly. Um, a lot of people probably Google me. I don't know if I'll find if I get Google. <laughs> so I'm sure they can sort of track me on LinkedIn too. You know, Jimmy Petruzzi on LinkedIn, I'm on there too. So, yeah, I mean, I'm always happy to communicate with people and, and give people an insight into, into what I do. I do YouTube videos. I do uh, iTunes as well. And that's just a way for me to give a bit back. And I think that, you know, I was quite fortunate to come across someone early on in my life who helped me a lot. And I feel I want to dedicate a portion to what I do professionally 
So giving, I wouldn't say helping anyone. I would say more if they find useful what I do, fantastic. And, and that's the idea behind doing the videos and iTunes um, around people finding use out of it and if it's appropriate to, to, to their circumstances, um, then, then great, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. We will have um, a link to, uh, to, to to the group that uh, Jimmy just mentioned over at Facebook for those of you that want to go and um, um, track him down and, and discover a bit more. Um, I'm over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website and in the uh, the iTunes episode notes for those of you that follow on there. Uh, and we will be back with Jimmy Petruzzi in a few minutes' time. I enjoyed that. Uh, more from Jimmy shortly. Um, um, I, I know Jimmy was advising against his his own approach to simply abandoning medication for his asthma as a younger man. Um, but there's actually some really good quality evidence to support the application of hypnosis for reducing asthma symptoms. Um, you know, if, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, go go check out some of my evidence based memes uh, where, where I featured studies where hypnosis has been used in that regard. Um, um, but you know, don't go taking that as a green light to chuck your ventolin in the bin. Okay. Um, next up, we're having a look at our hypnosis in the news stories. And today I'm making reference to a couple of stories that have both featured in the media in the past week. And they're both regarding TV soap opera storylines where hypnosis is featured. The first is a story uh, that featured in the Radio Times uh, this past week, which is entitled Neighbours. Andrea has a frightening flashback during hypnosis session with Carl. So, yes, indeed, you know, Carl the Doctor is doing hypnosis as well now uh, to, to, to help uh, uh, fellow characters, fellow members of the neighbourhood to, uh, uh, to, 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 to recollect uh, important information that's going to help uh, develop the plot. And uh, the second story um, um, to feature in the media this week was, was, was from the Days of Our Lives, uh, a TV soap opera. Um, and it's entitled Days of Our Lives Spoilers. Ben, under hypnosis, remembers Claire's ringtone at the cabin. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm guessing that that particular headline has just ruined and spoiled that storyline for everybody not wanting to know what it's about. Um, but it's, it, you know, it, it seems it, uh, it seemed like a good topic for me to, to reignite because I've spoken on this topic before. Um, but 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 given that that two TV soap operas uh, were, were, were covering this and were, were, were you know it was this type of TV depiction whereby hypnosis is used to recover formerly missing memories and details. Um, I mean, it made a lot of sense for me to, 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 to kind of rekindle this, this topic um, because it's a very misleading depiction of hypnosis. It's a portrayal that endures greatly, regardless of how many times people such as myself protest and hold up the evidence to the contrary. Um, you can go and watch my uh, my video on the subject of regression to cause approaches to hypnotherapy over at the Hypnosis Geek YouTube channel. Um, I'll put a link to that over at the episode notes. So I, I won't go on about that sort of stuff um, um, in that sense much further today. But I suppose, you know, in one sense, we can't really blame TV companies for portraying hypnosis in this way. You know, back in 1995, um, I'm, I'm, I, 
an important survey conducted by Paul, Lindsay, Memon and Bull um, demonstrated that roughly a third of all psychologists in the US at the time used hypnosis to help their patients to recall memories of sexual abuse. Now, um, that, that particular survey was conducted at a similar time that some of the biggest litigation cases in psychiatric history were, were, were underway. And so it was very relevant. Since then, however, there's been a growing body of evidence to suggest that actually there's a lot of problems with false recall that's associated with hypnosis. Yet this hasn't hampered the number of hypnotherapists that I encounter today that still think hypnosis should be used to recover memories in the way that's depicted on these two TV shows in this past week. Um, and, 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 you know, they sort of propagate each other a little bit. Hypnotherapists need to know, you know, that, that you, and, and the public, in my opinion, need to know that using hypnosis to recover memories can actually lead to, you know, the patient creating new material and adding it to the existing memories that they have. There's a huge body of scientific and medical information available that shows the very nature of memory being so malleable means that hypnosis usage could result in the creation um, of and implanting of false memories. Studies by Lynn and McConkie in 1998, Lynn and Nash in 1994 demonstrate this point quite clearly. I should also mention the reconstructive nature of memory and recommend you know, that, you, that you refer to that Lynn and McConkie study of 1998 for more information on this. You know, it's very much the, the consensus among cognitive scientists that memory is reconstructive. You see, not only is memory reconstructive, but it's also quite unreliable. You know, um, people have have such a belief, however, in the reliability of their memories to, to the extent whereby we're capable of creating false memories. You know, you, you'll know about this stuff. Even if a therapist is greatly skilled at not leading the patient in any way, um, um, you know, we, we, it, we can still create false memories based upon certain people's beliefs. And further studies confirm this and have been conducted, you know, um, in the 1990s and 1980s. Um, um, Lawrence and Perry in 1983, Barnier and Sheehan in 1998, for example. Now, false memories can also be, you know, easily be created without hypnosis. Of course they can. Yet many therapists continue to believe that hypnosis somehow brandishes the absolute truth when it comes to memory recall. And the truth is actually a tad more sinister, you know. Um, um, in 1994, Erdely reviewed 34 studies and Stebley and Bothwell reviewed 24 studies. And throughout, they showed that hypnosis does not increase the actual volume. Uh, um, um, the actual veracity of recall, but it does increase the volume of recall. So with that volume of recall comes much more incorrect as well as correct information and data. You know, that's, that's when hypnosis is used. But also the studies revealed that hypnotic recall is absolutely no more accurate than non-hypnotic recall. But when recalled hypnotically, people tend to be more confident in the reliability of the memory. And that's a problem, you know. The, the Stebley and Bothwell study even showed that hypnosis produces a lot more errors in memory recall and more volume of memories that had false information in them. And, you know, there, there, are, there are other studies to support this. Even researchers and individuals that openly state hypnosis is good for aiding recall have been unable to prove it. You know, it, it, it may relax us more in order that we're able to, to, to remember. But, but hypnosis per se doesn't really, um, um, you know, hasn't really been proven 
to, to aid recall. Um, some of the proponents have suggested that emotional arousal is required, yet a study in 1997 by Stephen Lynn and colleagues showed that hypnosis doesn't improve the recall of emotionally arousing events. And what's more, being highly emotional does not affect hypnotic recall either. Out of everything that I've read and examined, probably the most damning evidence for using hypnosis to recall memories comes from the research conducted by Nash, Drake, Wiley, Kalsa and Lynn um, in the late 1980s. And in this study, they attempted to match up and prove memories of participants who had been age regressed using hypnosis. And the, the participants were regressed using hypnosis and that there was a control group too. Taken to the age of three to a scene where they were with their mothers and the participants described items and objects that were present and then the actual mothers were then asked to verify what was in the scene. And the hypnotised participants in the study were less able than those in the control group these are the, the non-hypnotized people that were asked to do the same thing when it came to accurately matching the reports of their parents. In fact, the, the control group were, were more accurate. And there was a similar study conducted in 1997 by Sivek, Lynn and Malinowski that regressed uh, participants to five years old with, with, with very similar results. And it's the reason why the majority of countries today no longer allow hypnosis to be used in testimony in courts of law. In fact, in some states within the US, if you've used hypnosis to retrieve the memory, because of some of the evidence I've mentioned, the use of hypnosis actually makes the testimony null and void. Um, that, that there's some cases ongoing at the moment that are being thrown out because of this, you know, retrospectively. So evidence tends to suggest that when the hypnotherapist believes strongly in the efficacy of hypnosis for memory recall, then the patient also has more confidence in the reliability of that memory. And, you know, that's a problem. Our TV characters don't know what they're getting themselves into. Dr. Carl on Neighbours needs to tune in and listen to what I'm saying here. When you see the mounting body of evidence against this stuff, it's a shame that hypnosis still gets portrayed this way on the television. And the public still think that this is one of the main ways that hypnosis is used and that hypnosis somehow guarantees veracity as seen on the television um, and as seen in these soap operas this very week. Uh, there are links to each of those stories over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website and in the iTunes uh, uh, edition notes. Um, next up, we have this week's professional discussion. I welcome back Jimmy Petruzzi. And, you know, I'm really excited about this. We're, we're, we're talking all things sports performance and, and sports advancement using hypnosis. And Jimmy's got, um, um, you know, some amazing experiences uh, that he draws upon. Um, let's get on with that. Uh, here is this week's professional discussion with Jimmy Petruzzi. Enjoy. <music> So I'm back and rejoined by this week's guest, uh, Jimmy Petruzzi. And, um, I'm, you know, w w when I invite guests onto the show and I ask them, you know, I, I, about a subject for us to discuss, um, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy offered up a lot of really interesting subjects. And, I, and, 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 and if I could, uh, you know, if I could have discussed all of them, I would, I would have loved to, really. Um, um, one of the things that uh, Jimmy's going to be speaking about at, at the UK Hypnosis Convention this year is, is his specialism um, and working in sport and, and sporting mindset. Um, and it's something that, that I have a great personal interest in. So rather selfishly, uh, I'm kind of asking Jimmy if we can, we can talk a little bit 
about that and, and in particular um, his kind of specialised subject of mental rehearsal within sport. Um, um, Jimmy, welcome back. Um, um, t- yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about, about you know, how your interest developed um, 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 with regards to the kind of mental rehearsal for sport and, 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 and the kind of background to you, to you really specialising in that. Yeah, I mean, it was self-application initially and then through self-application of using various modalities and hypnosis being the, my preference, um, I would sort of go on to work with people, a number of different clients in, in, in sport, high-profile clients, athletes, uh, sporting establishments. And for me, mental rehearsal, I think it's one strategy that can help a lot. Um, we have an appraisal of an event, whether that be, but you can you can do the mental rehearsal for technique, but also for the game. And but equally, it can be a process that we use after we appraise an event or a game. Um, you know, we, we sort of go into a big game. We have these thoughts about the game, our beliefs the game about a game of performance, and and that elicits an emotional response, and and that is sort of interlinked with behaviour and physiology. So. For me, it's sort of separating the mesh um, between our thoughts. And I use the example for so you're gonna if you're gonna walk across a platform that's a meter high and ten meters long to pick up a million pounds, it wouldn't be much of a problem because you sort of think, well, I can walk across there and, and there's not much risk involved. But if you raise that platform at skyscraper level, all of a sudden you've got different thoughts that are going through your mind. It's still the same. All let's say that the weather conditions are the same as there's no uh, other variables, it's still the same length, it's still the same width you've got to walk across, but all of a sudden you think, well, what if I fall? What if this? And, and you start to mm-hmm. hypothesize about what could happen, and that obviously links to your emotions. You have a fear response, and you get uh, afraid and, and nervous, anxious, and behaviorally you might freeze and go to type. Um, you might decide, well, I won't do it, Physiologically, your heart starts beating. So it's sort of separating the mesh and finding the right strategy. And a really good strategy I find is is sort of visualizing because you'll see players in professional football, they'll score in a training game, 99 times out of 100, a penalty shootout, but you put them in a game situation and you'll see players that literally go back to a point in their life where they couldn't do the technique because they're under so much pressure. And what is pressure anyway? Pressure, I guess, is what we perceive in a given situation and for me it's sort of not even so much hypnotizing it's dehypnotizing the person in terms of the way they perceive the situation um, and the brain being complex I think the brain is, is a complex organ that's evolved over many many years you know from the very beginning you know simple towards the way stimulus and it's sort of reaching the past of the brain um, that a deeper you know we, we sort of evolve with a brainstem that controls our breathing and heart rate, hypothalamus that uh, has other uh, implications. It's the hypothalamus uh, has other primal behaviors, for example, and, which is quite useful because when we think about the way we sort of regulate cortisol as well, um, the hypothalamus gets input from the amygdala and the motivational behaviors of hypothalamus is involved in quite basic motivational behaviors like getting food, water, um, you know, reproduction, so on and so forth. But we've seen for experiments in years gone by, we're still functional to a point. Um, when they've done experiments on animals and removed the hypothalamus, they can still do uh, basic 
functions. So sort of cutting a long story short, um, and the reason I'm alluding to this is that, you know, we then evolved with the limbic system, the hippocampi. Um, and the irony is that sort of that part of the brain, the limbic system that's involved in very pure, raw emotions, you know, feeling of fear, anger, and so forth, happiness, and so on and so forth. Um, for me, a lot of the problems are lodged in that area. A lot of the way um, the, the the problems are lodged there because we've got our frontal lobes that come into the equation later, later on. And if you can rationalize your way out of a problem, you will do, but it's hard to do so. So you can tell a player, for example, in sport, it's just a, you know, 12 yards away from the goal, you strike the ball, um, you know, you, you can sort of talk to them logically, but logically is one thing. So, you know, we're looking at ways to reach that primal part of the brain, the, to, to be able to, uh, from our evolutionary history, the way we evolved. Um, so for me, um, we want to look at ways to, to, to do that. And one way of doing it is verbal communication. It can get us really, really far. But if a human being can think they won't have a problem, they probably will do. They won't see a therapist or a coach. So for me, what it comes down to is creating experiences for people. If you think prefrontal cortex, which sort of comes into the equation later on in evolutionary history, we can use that for reasoning, planning, decision-making, problem-solving. Um, we know that through neuroimaging and through uh, things that happen to people who damage their frontal part of the brain how functional they are. So for me, it's about limbic communication. It's a psychobiological evolutionary base of communication. Yeah. And if you look at animals, communicate through signals and sounds. Um, we, as human beings, are sophisticated. We use verbal communication. But for me, the problems are located in the limbic part of the brain. Now, I sort of skimmed over that because of time, but I want to give the listeners a flavor of not that behavior is limbic-based, at least in my opinion. Mm. And I think we've got to look at ways to reach them. The analogy I use, you don't win a sporting tournament by reading a book. You need to be experiential. Um, you need to go out there and, and, and you know, do your application. So factual information, you know, telling someone didactically, it's only a penalty shootout. Telling someone, okay, you, you'll get another chance, another game. Um, you know, sitting someone down saying this is how you kick a ball. At some point, they need to be experiential. So for me, um, what I tend to do is create experiences for people. And very, very briefly, one of the analogies I use is the, the you know, the film, uh, you know, or the story, I should say, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Um, you know, people have probably seen the film. Ebenezer Scrooge, is, he changes his identity. Uh, he gets a visit from his former business partner, Jacob Marley, the spirits of the past, the present, yet to come. And he transforms, his, he transforms himself his identity, his personality, behavior, emotions, through, and he doesn't know if it's real or not real, but what's important is he changes um, as a person the following day. And for me, um, using hypnosis and using rehearsal can be a way of doing that. Um, and one of the ways to think about is neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah. So the connection, the mental activity, the brain structure, the neurons communicate with each other through neurotransmitters, and I think we can do rehearsal on, on the level of reappraising past situations. It can be mm. quite useful for doing that and reappraising them um, because we know that memories fade. 
we know that you know we've only got so many neurons so the memories are not as rich as we first experienced so what we might have experienced 20 years ago that aversion of an experience with the amygdala you know 20 years later we might still get that feeling again based on what happened a long time ago so i find this quite useful to do that and, and do like um, rehearsal and go back in time and do regressive techniques to rephrasing, but also going forward as well to create new pathways in the brain. Um, it's quite a useful thing to do that and to get the client to rehearse and create a script of what they want to do technically, tactically, the game itself, see themselves dissociated and then associate to it. And that's quite a non-intrusive way of helping the person re, re, you know, reinforce behavioral and technical strategies. So, yeah, hopefully yeah, yeah. With, with regards to that, uh, with regards to that, Jim, um, um, just tell me, with regards to the some of the mental rehearsal for sport, you know, um, um, it, it's something which is a, a, a big fascination of mine um, um, and something that I, I use greatly. Um, 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 when you're asking people to mental rehearse kind of, kind of outcomes um, um, and, and, you know, ideal outcomes, um, I'm, I'm at, do, do you have to make sure that people are doing it within the realms of, of reality, you know, to make sure that they're not kind of, you know, if someone's if someone's a, 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 a four hour marathon runner, uh, um, that, that them imagining themselves running in, you know, being the first person to, to, to run sub two hours, for example, is probably unrealistic yeah. and, and might not necessarily be that good for them. So. I'm guessing that you educate people in a number of ways with regards to to, to, to what it is they're going to mentally rehearse. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. I think that, that can be a challenge in the sense that the challenge is, is I, I tend to focus on the process in the sense that, you know, from a technical point of view, we break the components technically down. Like, for example, like kicking the right. ball, you know, eyes over the ball, sorry, head, you know, head over the ball, arms out for balance you know, non-kicking foot in the direction of where you yeah. want the ball to go, keep your head down. So I tend to, to work on, on that in terms of technique. But in terms of the game, I get them to work on the tactical aspect too. In terms of from a goal point of view, you know, you can start then in mind, go to the feeling of achieving the goal. I think reality is a tough one because you just quite never know where someone might go with things. So I tend sure. to break things down. and It's a really interesting one. I'm going to sort of give a couple of examples shortly. But we know in neuroscience now that Neuroplasticity gets strengthened pathways in the brain. Um, our repeated experiences shape our brain, so we can actually sculpt and shape our synaptic connections based on repeated experiences. Now we've seen that in the brains of meditators, for example. Yeah. You know, parts of the brain where compassion grows stronger. You know, cortical thinking. So, from the point of view of, say, for example, um, visualization rehearsal, it's not intrusive in the sense that okay, how much can you practice technically? without, you know, maybe getting an injury. So you can go out there and, you know, you go to say kick a hundred, you know, you kick a football hundred times, there comes a point where it can be counterproductive because obviously, you know, you could cause an overuse injury. But this is where I come in with my sort of sports performance conditions and physiological side. There is a danger, and I could, if someone comes to see me, put my belief on what they can and can't achieve. So what I would do, if I don't believe I can help someone, I'm honest in the sense that I tell them I'm probably not the best person for them. So if someone came along to me and they'd never run a marathon before and they said, I want to get three hours uh, in the marathon, but never done it before, I say to them, I'm probably not the best person to help you with that. 
But then again, he's saying that we've seen people take up sports at in all ages, defy all, you know, expectations. Yeah, 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 you, absolutely. You've read that, you know, you've probably read the literature, you know, you know, a grandmother lifting a car, for example, and things that shouldn't happen do happen. And in my experience, I've seen people who defy all realms of possibility. But we are sort of work with people. I'll give you an example, actually, which probably help um, the listeners sort of get a bit of clarification. And yeah. you won't, you won't mind me saying it. Um, this is a, a, an example that comes to mind. There's a young lad I worked with one time, and he was playing for a team uh, in in the UK called uh, Macclesfield. It's, it's, it's a, at the time, I think they were in League Two, the fourth team of English football. Now he and I was working with him, and he had a condition called Osgood's Lattice. Now, I'm not a medical person. I don't understand the condition very well, but I do know that the more he does physically, the more he aggravates the condition. So yeah. his dad brings him to me. He's a 17-year-old lad, and he's playing for Macclesfield. He's got this condition that he cannot train as much as he'd like to train physiologically, and that's the advice I believe he got from his physiotherapist and medical people to deal with that. Now, I asked him, what do, you, what do you envision me doing with him and working on confidence and so on and so forth. So I thought to myself, well, actually, you know what? If he can't train physically at this point, then why don't we do visualization and mental rehearsal around the technique? Now, there are, and there is research, for example, at Chicago University of basketballers who practice the free throw line of basketball, shooting the hoop, there was a, a research, I don't recall who did the actual research now, but I can look it up if the, view, if the listeners want and send them an article to it. But there were like three groups of basketball players, and one group practiced throwing from the free throw line visually, one practiced physically, and one don't practice at all. And the ones that practiced visually improved the most. The ones that practiced physically improved second, and the ones that didn't practice sort of went backwards. So what I did with the lab... And Macclesfield was sort of do mental rehearsal with him around his technique, heading a ball, kicking a ball, playing a game. And when it came to, uh, they had to make a decision because in, in, in that, in, in a youth scholarship, you've got two years and then they make a decision based on whether you get a contract or not. When it came to the point he could train again and, and sort of, I believe he got to a point where he would start training again. Um, he found that his technique had improved. Um, now, it was quite amazing, really, because to think that he did limited practical stuff physically, he would work with me uh, visually. Now, obviously, physiologically, it didn't improve because you need to train physiologically to get improvements, you know, the rule of adaptation. But technically, he found that he had improved. And for me... You know, ideally, yeah, obviously you can practice physically too. But, you know, the professionals um, uh, in, 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 in their remit have suggested that he had to ease back on the physical training. So the, we really focused on the, on, and emphasized on the, um, on the technical side. So, yeah. you know, the point I'm making there is how powerful mental rehearsal can be. You know, to think that I'm not suggesting that what I did with him um, – you know, was the reason he got a contract. And I'm not suggesting that what I did with him was the emphasis of him improving technically. The technique was there um, anyway. But the point being that what else could we do in that situation? So, you yeah. know, and, and he thereafter sort of 
was quite amazed to think. So that's how powerful it can be. Another very brief example was um, outside sport was this guy I was working with one time, and he had to go for a, a, a test, the military. Now, the idea was he had to run, I think, it was 1.5 miles in a certain time. Now, he got to a point where I get a call from his wife, uh, and she phoned me up and said, can you help my husband? He's got his meltdown. I said, what's the issue? He goes, he's got a test in three or four days, a physical test with the military. Uh, he can do the run in that sort of time, but he's just so overwhelmed that he doesn't think he can sort of get through this sort of test. I don't recall what the physical test was, by the way. It was something along the lines of a 1.5-mile run and a number of different disciplines he had to do. But what she said was happening to him was he'd get about half a mile, whatever it was, he'd go to pieces and couldn't do it. So yeah. I asked her to get him to phone me up, and she said she would do, but he doesn't really buy into what you do. And I said, well, that's fine. Um, that's his problem, not mine, if obviously you believe I can help. But he did phone and he came along to do a session with me. And at that point, Adam, you can't really do any physiological training. The test is in a week. And I thought, yeah. well, if nothing else, to do physical training, we could aggravate an injury. There's no way we can improve physically in three or four days at the no. point. So I was thinking, well, what we'll do, we'll do medical rehearsal instead of an anchor. And I got him to break things down. Now, he could do that time, like you mentioned, for the marathon, if someone can do the time. It wasn't like trying to run your TV being four hours in the marathon to two hours. It was like he could actually run the time, but his appraisal was, if I don't get this promotion, I won't be able to get the pay rise. If I don't get the pay rise, I can't pay for this, that, and the other. And sort of separating that mesh I mentioned earlier around the appraisal situation, and I found that visualization was a useful way so we broke it down to manual components and I got him to visualize uh, the run itself and ironically he would really mental rehearse and I broke it down to manageable levels so we went to okay um, let's visualize the first 300 meters let's visualize the second and let's focus on the point of when you feel this apprehension and we can set an anchor at that point uh, and, and then sort of see the run through. And the irony is we visualized, 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 and actually I gave him a call on the Monday of the test, and I said, how would you get on? And he goes, well, the bad news was that the test didn't go ahead, but the good news is it's on tomorrow, so I've got more time to visualize. He sends me a text back. I remember that Tuesday, we did the, the first session on the Thursday, and he sent me a text back saying, I've smashed it. And ironically, the time that we set visually, I think yeah. it was 11.32 along them lines to do the run. I think it was just under two-mile run. He actually got within a second of that two-mile run. That's how hard we <laughs> visualize. And Brilliant. I think that's probably the best way for people to sort of, you know, could he have done it without me? I don't know. We'll probably never know the answer to that. But the fact was, it was a few days before his test, and he was in meltdown. And it yeah. wasn't so much the physiological improvements is the appraisal you had around the uh, event itself. And visualization for me is non-intrusive. If it's not for you, you don't do it. Um, so there's no real high uh, risk in the sense that, you know, you sit down if it's not for you. But the idea for me between visualization is building familiarity with the brain. So, you know, these days in high-level sport, you've got, you know, high-tech equipment that can replicate the environment you're going to be in 
to build familiarity for the brain. So you've got, you know, computerized uh, systems that can give you the the temperature that you're going to be competing in, the conditions. You can create a real experience to give the brain familiarity. But if you haven't got that equipment, then next best thing. So what I do with my athletes, especially in football, I get them to print the fixture list off at the start of the season. I've got a stable of top-class footballers and athletes. I get the print the fixture list off, and I say, okay, Every game I want to visualize, and I want to visit every ground you've not been before, go there and familiarize yourself uh, with the ground. Even if you go watch a game there, get a feel for the spectators, what you're going to see, visualize various permutations, the weather, it could be hot, it could be cold, the sort of play you're going to be playing against, the way they play, because what you're doing by doing that is creating these pathways in the brain. So I know that to stand the best chance to win a game. If I visualize myself doing or participating uh, or competing against someone on many occasions, I'm going to have a better chance than I would do by leaving it to off chance. That's not to say, you know, it's, and there's no technique that's foolproof. That's not to say you're going to go there. But I think it's about giving yourself the best possible chance uh, in anything. And I think for me, the evidence is overwhelming. Um, you know, you know, another couple of brief examples is is when I was doing some consultancy work at the Air Force. Um, I talked about visualization being a really crucial component uh, for, which I won't reach confidentiality, um, but for some of the things that we're talking about doing. And I, as someone who's a bit apprehensive about it, and he was quite senior in, in that environment, and he said to me, you know, I, I won't repeat what he said, but <laughs> what I did is rather than challenge him, Adam, what I said to him to do, I said, you know what, well, why don't you come out to the front and I'll demonstrate um, the process. And what I got him to do was I did a bit of a behavioral experiment with him. I took his blood pressure and his heart rate. Now, I'm not a medical person, by the way, but I've got a background in sports performance conditioning, so I wasn't trying to prove any other point other than a bit of an experiment. So I said, let's take your heart rate and blood pressure after you've done a process. And we measured it. And I said, okay, what I want to do now is let's do some visualization and mental rehearsal, doing the same process again. And what we did is we measured his heart rate again and blood pressure. Now, to give you an example, um, very briefly, his heart rate was about 80 BPM, 80 beats per minute, prior to the intervention. Uh, once we did the intervention, the same process that he did, the heart was at 65. And he said, well, what's the meaning of that? I said, the meaning is that if you take 15 beats per minute less on your heart um, per minute over the course of the day, that's about 10,000 BPM less uh, um, you know, strain on your heart. But cutting a long story short, I said to him, okay, imagine doing a task with your heart rate reduced by that effectively. And I said, I want you to do the yeah. task again, run up and down the room, get your heart rate to where it was before, and do the same task and do it with the reduction. Uh, and that really sold him on the idea. Now, as I mentioned, I'm not you know, a medical person. That's not my area. I only did it to, to show him how powerful this could be. And he then turned around to me saying, well, would my heart rate not go back up again? I said, well, very likely it wouldn't be but then rehearse again. That's the idea um, behind it all, um, and that's the sort of key. And I sort of, you know, without going into the technical components of it, 
it shows how powerful it is. And, you know, and I think it's useful too in terms of um, it's non-intrusive. And I had, you know, a team, one of the biggest teams in, 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 in the world in football, a sports scientist of one of the biggest teams in the world in football asked me ways to reduce cortisol. Um, was there any way we could apply this to reduce cortisol? I said, well, every individual is different, so it all depends on what's you know raising the cortisol. Um, their issue was, Adam, they would play Champions League football. And after Champions League football, wow. the issue was that um, the players couldn't sleep. And Champions League football, you generally play for the listeners who aren't aware of when, when you play. You play generally on Tuesday, Wednesday night. And sometimes you travel away, it's a three or four hour flight, and the, yeah. the trouble they've got, they can't sleep. They've got a game on the weekend, and they measured cortisol levels. They were a lot higher than what they'd normally be. And that was obviously down to, no doubt, a correlation of factors, not just the game itself, but you know, obviously the game was an implication. Now, the idea is that you know, sleep is, is, is key in recovery. And, and they tried a number of different things that you know, were useful, but they're looking at new different ways. And I suggest in a think tank that what they could use is, is imagery uh, would be a useful way to maybe correlate. Now, I showed them some research articles to, that they could read and see that imagery could be potentially effective. Now, obviously, you know, if there's raising cortisol levels, I said the first thing that you know no, that you've done already anyway is getting to get you know checked up by a physician. Uh, I'm not a medical person. I don't want to cross over to that boundary. So I'm doing psychosocial techniques. It could be a medical issue for all I know. I don't know. Get the appropriate person to check that out. But having done that, if all things being well, they can't find anything and, you know, it's down to a psychosocial appraisal of a, of a situation in a game and obviously other physiological factors that you're dealing with anyway that are not my remit like nutrition. Let's look at maybe uh, imagery. And we sort of talked about that and I sort of demonstrated ways that they could sort of, not just imagery, focusing on the process and the technical aspect, but sort of going to a place where they felt um, you know, and, and you'll know there's research in the literature suggests that hypnosis can help with, you know, body hypnosis has an impact on body temperature, hypnosis has an impact on blood pressure, a lot of physiological factors that hypnosis has an impact on. And I, I felt that, you know, what we can do is on twofold. One is circadian rhythms, because you know, you get up in the morning and that's when their cortisol's at the highest. If we go back to evolution history, we mentioned before, you know, in the morning yeah. you're hunting or you're running away, but then the cortisol drops. So I suggest that obviously Develop a platform of training that works around circadian rhythms, uh, but also maybe um, get them to visualize a game if it's too much to do it physically at 7.45 in the evening so they can adjust right, to that yeah. biological response because you don't want to be playing a game a day before a Champions League game at 7.45 because you'll probably become an injury. So, so get them to visualize the game. There's not too much of a shock to the system and get them to sort of tie into that. So that's where hypnosis and visualization was really effective. And that's sort of a long story short. Um, I'm sort of mindful of sort of losing the listeners, but they give a bit of insight into how effective this can be. And the most important thing to me, Adam, with all this sort of stuff, you're going to get certain people that don't buy into it. There's a stigma around it. And I'm fine with that. But for me, I always say to the people I'm working with, think about the level of intrusiveness in these techniques. If you don't want to do hypnosis, then, you know, that's fine. You put your hand up and you don't do it. It's not a problem. You know, it's not for everybody. But equally in saying that, you know, there's, there's far more intrusive modalities than hypnosis and yeah. methods around these areas um, to help people. And I always sort of tell them, you know what, 
is one and the same. It's not for everybody, um, but equally, the literature, the science, um, there is a lot of research out there to back a lot of this stuff up. But you know, equally, saying that we could do with a lot more literature and science around these areas too. But you know, you know as well as I do, it's not yeah. easy. Yes, yeah. yes, it's something I say um, a great deal. And, and but but those are some really really compelling um, um, cases that that you mentioned there. Um, um, you know, really really fascinating stuff. And and I, I thank you for for sharing so generously um, about this. And and you know, I'm delighted that 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 we that we did speak about this. You know, specific topic. Um, um, and and you know, I'm really excited about. Uh, 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 about your presentation at the UK Hypnosis Convention this year, and um, Jimmy, just remind people. You know, if people want to learn more about your performance work and so on, and people want to come and train with you or whatever, where, where can people go to learn more about it? Yeah, I mean, you know, if they, I've got the, the Facebook page NLP Hypnotherapy Mindset for Success. Yeah. Um, if they, you know, YouTube, you'll see a number of videos out there. Yeah. Um, they can get in touch with Jimmy Petruzzi at NLP Hyphen Training Course.com. I think that's a really important thing. It's for me, um, you know, in terms of training and, 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 and workshops and so on and so forth, it's really important to, you know, get stuff out there and let people, you know, make a decision whether you're the right person for them. And I think, you know, we sort of talked about, earlier about you know anyone else getting into hypnosis um, and, and being a hypnosis practitioner, I think what's really important for people to sort of take on board, you're not going to be for everybody, uh, and that's okay too, no. and, and you widen the radar, and certainly, you know, uh, my approach is for everybody, but it is for a lot of people too, and I think you've got to find your niche in the sense that, you know, you set your stall out there, and some people are going to come along and, and they'll buy into you. And some people, you know, it might not be the right time. But the one thing I would say about the, the, the conference um, last year, I thought Nick did a great job. And I thought one thing that was really, really fantastic about the conference last year was, you know, I, I've been to conferences before, spoken around the world in many conferences, and many of them have been great. But you do, you do get the conferences where, you know, people bring their ego into the sort of into the equation. But I felt yeah. last conference was phenomenal. You know, in respect to that, everyone was so giving and it was such a great vibe. And I think, you know, from what I've seen and what you've created is it, it, fantastic. And I looked at some of the speakers and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. A great blend of, you know, um, speakers. And I have one foot in both camps. I have one foot in the spiritual camp, one foot in the scientific camp. I, I really need a scientific answer to everything, really. But to the point that I'm quite happy to listen to people's story as well. And science doesn't have all the answers. I think we've got so far with science, but there's a, an ocean of stuff that we just can't make sense of. And for me, I have a philosophical approach. For anyone sort of deciding whether to you know, come on board and check me out, I'm the sort of person that is very philosophical. You probably see me reading a book on, the, on a coach when I'm with a sporting team like Irvin Yalom, you know, staring at the sun and, and, and windy she wept. And I'm quite existential in my approach, you know, which is, which is probably quite, uh, I suppose it kind of goes against the grain sometimes, but I truly believe that there's a big picture up there. There's so much we don't know. And sure. the analogy I, I use is the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Carl Sagan type, you know, references the deep Hubble experiment where you, you look into the universe and there's a whole millions of galaxies we're not aware of. And I think science is phenomenal. It's taken us so far. And it's really important to me to trace things back to 
scientific evidence, but equally saying that there's things that we can't explain. And you'll know yourself, Adam, the work that you do. You do great work, obviously, phenomenal work yourself. And you'll know there's certain things that we just can't explain. And, and, and yeah. you know, I think it's really important people take that on board that, you know, sometimes there are certain things that they just work. Uh, and that's the most important thing. And, and I think the purpose of any therapeutic intervention is to go from maladaptive to adaptive. And I think, you know, whatever the reason um, behind it, I'm sure there's a number of correlating factors around it. Uh, and the reason I sort of say that message is that there's so many great people out there doing so much great work. And I would certainly suggest to anyone listening, um, you know, just find the right person for you or the right people for you and have an open mind and, and see what the road takes you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I really appreciate that. You know, one of the things I speak about often is, um, um, as practitioners as well, that you don't attempt, that you don't even attempt to be everything to everybody because, you know, you, you often then end up be becoming a watered down version of yourself. So um, um, I, I, I think you're spot on with that. You know, I, I think absolutely you find you find the people and you work with the people that are right for you. Um, 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 really, all that's left for me to say today, Jimmy, um, um, thank you so much for coming and um, being a guest uh, on the Hypnosis Weekly podcast and being my guest on this week's show. Um, um, do go uh, uh, um, um, check out uh, what Jimmy's doing out there in the world. And uh, thank you, the one and only Jimmy Petrucci. Thanks, Adam, and thanks to the listeners. Thank you. I enjoyed that. Uh, great guy, Jimmy. You know, he's worked with some impressive clients and sports teams. You see some of the some of the testimonials he has on his site uh, from from some really impressive uh, individuals and teams. Um, like I said earlier, he's going to be speaking at this year's UK Hypnosis Convention too. Uh, there's a link to Jimmy's Facebook page that he mentioned, um, um, along with uh, um, a, a direct email link. Um, I'm over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website and in the episode's notes at iTunes. Um, so finally this week is our evidence-based factoid of the week. And the factoid is this, that hypnotic communication just before and during epidural placement, uh, placement for women uh, uh, has a progressive effect and that there are benefits. Um, so the, the purpose of this particular study um, um, was to was to, to evaluate the effects of a hypnotically based intervention for pain and fear in women that are undergoing labour who are about to receive an epidural catheter. So um, a group of 155 women uh, received interventions that included either A, um, um, the patient, patient rocking, gentle touching and hypnotic communication, or B, patient rocking, gentle touching and standard communication. And the authors found and reported that the hypnotic communication intervention was more effective than the standard communication intervention for reducing both pain, intensity and fear. And, you know, the results support the use of hypnotic communication just before and during epidural placement for women who are in labour. And also, you know, it, it indicates additional research is recommended to evaluate some of the benefits and some of the mechanisms of this treatment. Um, um, the, uh, yeah, the paper was uh, entitled Impact of a Hypnotically Based Intervention on Pain and Fear in Women Undergoing Labour. And there's an, uh, um, a link to that particular paper over at the um, International Journal 
um, included on this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. And like I said earlier, you know, if you follow me on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, you can find masses of memes um, um, relating to a variety of studies uh, whereby hypnosis has been examined um, um, that you can use to, to promote and, and, and make credible uh, some of the work that we do. Uh, that's it for this week's 116th edition. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I do have many more exciting guests that are welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming editions. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. Uh, next episode, I'll be welcoming Graham Weber. We'll be talking about CPD and uh, much more besides. And all the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's just Hypnosis Weekly with a hyphen in the middle.com. And I welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions. So do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure that they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again go to Jimmy Petruzzi and thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. 